Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts like today, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. So everybody, it's Ellie here. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at Atomic Moms and join our private Facebook group. So we had a rough morning at the Stekiels today. Uh, yes, everybody, that's my married last name. It's S-Z-T-Y-K-I-E-L. Um, that's not why it was a rough morning, though. Sabrina, our just turned five-year-old, she has bug bites from the park and they keep her up at night and she won't put any lotion on because she doesn't like lotion and she ended up in bed with us. So I wanted to kick this episode off with a little moment from the award-winning book that we're talking about today. The book is Raising a Sensory Smart Child, the, de- the Definitive Handbook for Helping Your Child with Sensory Processing Issues. The latest edition is out this week, and it's written by Lindsay Beal and Nancy Pesky. So here's the quote, and it just made me smile, so I want to share it with everyone just up top. The morning sets the tone for the entire day. Rushing, disorganization, and harsh words are terribly hard to overcome once your child gets to school and you start your own day. Even if the morning is horrible, always try to sincerely tell your child that you love them, even if you're furious, and that you hope they have a good day, even if you doubt it, and that you look forward to seeing them later, even if you're delighted to have a break. That really made me smile this morning, Lindsay. She is our guest on the line. She's an occupational therapist with a private practice in New York City where she evaluates and treats children, adolescents, and young adults with sensory processing issues, developmental delays, autism spectrum disorders, physical disabilities, and other challenges. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So let's start with the basics because I didn't know about any of this before... I became a parent. What is it that you do, Lindsay? Like, what does it mean to be a pediatric occupational therapist? Okay. Well, occupational therapists help people of all ages to better do the things that occupy their time. So for children, of course, that means things like uh, putting on bug bite lotion and (laughs) going to school and playing and learning and being a responsible member of your household. So I will help a child um, do those things uh, better and figure out why there's a problem. And often a child will have difficulty at school or with playing or doing some basic self-care tasks because they have some underlying sensory processing issues. So I've written uh, two books on the subject. The first book that you mentioned, Raising a Sensory Smart Child, I co-wrote with the mom of a child that I used to see through early intervention, Nancy Pesky. I also had a background in writing Um, many years before I became an OT, and she was also a professional writer. So it made sense that we would write this book together and um, really have tools. I wanted to share the tools that I had as an occupational therapist with parents who didn't have access to an OT, 
uh, with parents who, you know, their kids were struggling, but not that much that they, you know, were referred for an occupational therapy evaluation. So we give a lot of practical tips um, about how to deal with things like toothbrushing and sleeping and picky eating and dealing with those tactile sensitivities that you described. So it's a, it's a real range of things that I do. I also work with um, kids on the autistic spectrum, kids with uh, physical disabilities, learning differences, and so on. So OT is a big field, and I've, I've focused in on pediatrics. So self-regulation is a phrase that every parent hears these days. As someone who struggled with anxiety in the past, and sometimes it obviously rears its ugly head <laughs> still today for me, and even before we just hopped on the Skype call, like sometimes my anxiety will ramp up and then I go into like what I call possum mode. Like I just, I get really kind of sleepy and no energy all of a sudden. And so like I did jumping jacks before I called you, which is why I'm slightly out of breath, but it like helps me get back in my body and self-regulate. So for those of you who, out there who are not weirdos like me doing jumping jacks before important interviews, like <laughs> might not be aware of self-regulation. Lindsay, can you break that down for us? Like what is self-regulation and, and how can we be more aware of it in our everyday life? You would be surprised at how many people do manage their um, anxiety. We all have some anxiety to some degree or other, and how many people do certain things to help them feel at their best. For you, it was jumping jacks. Uh, for another person, they need to go for a run in the morning in order to feel self-regulated. Um, for me, I need to take a long, hot shower in the morning to sort of get myself on an even keel. So self-regulation, we all, life is all about self-regulation, getting that feeling of everything feels okay. I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm not over aroused. Um, I'm not anxious. I'm not like a nervous, you know, super nervous. Um, I'm also not sort of sluggish and lethargic. Self-regulation is reaching that just right state. Now, for some people, that's very difficult. In children, what self-regulatory issues look like are in the early years, um, poor sleep-wake um, rhythms, difficulty establishing um, hunger and, and satisfaction cycles. It begins to look like anxiety just having difficulty getting, you know, we, we get excited and stimulated and our heart rate goes up, our blood starts coursing through our veins and we start mm -hmm. to breathe in a different way. And self-regulation is how we just sort of bring everything down to um, a calmer level so that we can feel and function optimally. For kids who have sensory issues, the children that I most often deal with, they... Um, Self-regulation may be what you were talking about, doing some jumping jacks, doing some intense movement. I kind of, when I'm working with a child, I'm kind of reading where they're at. Where is their nervous system at? Are they functioning like at a high arousal level? What do I need to do to help them meet those needs, those intense needs, and help them to sort of calm down and self-soothe? 
or are they kind of under aroused and, and what do I need to do to help raise their arousal level? And it's often in the form of exercise um, that helps to generate those calming neurotransmitters that, that help people feel good, like a runner's high. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So when I pick up my five-year-old from school, she is in a state of high arousal and she I think it's a rough thing to go straight from the classroom into her car seat mm-hmm. anyway, because she can, unless I put on, you know, the Frozen Broadway soundtrack, uh, <laughs> she'll, she wants to pick Very a fight. Very regulating. Yeah. yeah. She wants to pick a fight. Mm. And then when we get home, it's, she has a wonderful relationship with her one-year-old sister, but she, it's like she's She's like, oh, kind of turns into this wild animal. And it's really Mm. odd because, I mean, you probably hear about it all the time, but it it feels odd as the parent because when I pick her up from school, the teacher will say like, oh, you know, God, you know, kind of this like, it must be so wonderful having Sabrina as your daughter. Like I've had a teacher say like, you know, you could send her to the grocery store with a list and she'd do, you know, she'd be able to get the groceries for you. Like she's so... At school, like she's very, very, I think, regulated and really, you know, she excels there. But the problem is afterwards, it's like she's this Tasmanian devil. And I'm not sure with that high arousal state, do I say, let's go for a jog around the block or will that make her even more exhausted? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do I up the ante? Because she'll want to wrestle. Let's say, right. but that always ends up in a big meltdown by the end of it. Or do I say, let's calm down with some music and, you know, let's get in your teepee and read a book? Like how, what do I go, do I up the ante or do I try to calm her down? Okay. I totally get what you're saying. And yeah, it's pretty common. Also fairly common as a child who's an angel at home and then they fall apart at school because they're overstimulated. But it it sounds like from your daughter, she's holding it together all day and she's processing all this information and and doing the right thing and uh, really holding herself together and good for her. Uh, That's great. And then it's exhausting. It's like finally she's done with school and and she probably loves school, but it's like, oh, I'm I'm psychically exhausted, Mm -hmm. right? And here's mom and I can just let it all hang loose and just, you know, (laughs) and then she has a very hard time. So, you know, it's, I often see kids who hold it together all the day, all day long, and then they fall apart once mom shows up or dad. And I also have to add, sometimes they'll hold it together for the babysitter even. Yes. After school. And then mom or dad comes home and it's like, you know, everything goes haywire. Um, and it, it's not the parents' fault. It's just you guys are the, you know, the safe. The babysitter thinks she's so much better at parenting than me. <laughs> I hear that so much. <laughs> There's moments where I'm just like, oh my God, can you stop talking about how great she is once we leave the house? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It, it's number one, it feels terrible. And number two, it's a false equivalency. Right. Right. And I think it's very important that parents keep that in mind because a babysitter is still often, you know, sort of an authority figure. They're they're different than a parent. They're not parenting. They're babysitting. So, um, yeah, don't don't take that too much to heart, although I 
you know, I also get it as a, as a therapist. Parents are like, why, what is this magic thing you do where my child is so great with you? And then with me, it's like, oh, I can't do all these things. Anyway, to answer your actual question, your question has to do with what do you do when you see your child is highly stimulated? Right. Do you feed into that or do you immediately go into like, oh, let's calm down now? The fact is, when you are upset, when I am upset, I'll make it personal. If someone tells me to calm down, I'm going <laughs> to freak out. Right. It's like yeah. the worst thing you could ever say to me because I'm so far away from that that I can't go right into calming. So often I need to vent. And you need to sort of let that pent up energy out. She doesn't know how to. Re- I, I'm simplifying things, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to help. She doesn't know how to release it Mm-mm. in a way that's positive and OK, um, but she needs it. It's it, it's all bottled up in her. Yes. So the question becomes, how do we meet those needs and then help her to lower her arousal from there? So what I would suggest if possible, and I know sometimes it's not possible, you gotta get her in the car seat and go, Um, but if possible, give her an opportunity to get that energy out before you even try to get into the car seat. Let's run around the school. Let's run up and down the block. Let's do monster walks all the way to the car in the parking lot. What's a monster walk? I need to know what a monster walk is, Lindsay. Oh, you're going to have fun with that. (laughs) She'll know. She'll know. You just sort of make like big stomping, you know, she'll love that. Pound down on the sidewalk and growl and roar and make monster noises. Another game I like to play is taking giant steps and then itty bitty steps. So I'll do like (laughs) giant steps and mousy steps. So it's like, all right, I'm going to do this big, you know, energy consuming activity. And then I'll start to switch back and forth to like these little tiny mousy steps. For her, it might be little um, Elsa steps, right? Yep. Something like that. Or when you go home, you can put on music if you're at home. I love to put on music and dance with kids. Let's dance it out. Mm-hmm. And then we can sit down and have a snack. You can't force a child whose body desperately needs to move to not move. It's it's too hard for them. They can't do that. You're teaching them, what does my body need to feel better? What can I do that is okay and acceptable? And then how can I dial it down from there? That is extremely helpful. Can we share a little bit about grooming and bathing because I know a lot of kids hate having their hair washed. Like for example, my poor Sabrina, I'm just using her as the guinea pig today, but she like, she'll freak out about water in her eyes, even though she loves swimming. Um, but she hates the idea of like water in her eyes when I'm washing her hair. So can you give us some tools for bath time and for hair brushing? Cause I know that no matter where your child is in terms of their, sensory processing, like this is something that a lot of parents struggle with. 
A lot, a lot. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. And this is exactly the kind of thing that I feature in Raising a Sensory Smart Child. But let's talk about it here right now so people can do this maybe tonight when they're washing their child's hair. So when let's, as an OT, I'm really good at sort of breaking down and analyzing the features of any activity. So if we're talking about bathing and hair washing, I'm thinking about the water. I'm thinking about the shampoo. I'm thinking about the lighting in the room and the sound in the room, right? If a child's sensitive to sounds, which many young children are, the echoes in the bathroom can be too much. I'm thinking about how sensitive is the child's body? How sensitive is the child's scalp? The scalp is really sensitive. Some of our kids are very uncomfortable with light touch. They're much more comfortable with deep pressure. So think about if you ever you've had a bad massage, it was kind of <laughs> fingertippy and light and you're lying there on the massage table thinking, how am I going to get out of this one? Right? Totally. Or even like a light handshake, like that kind of like fish oh, handshake. Like, <laughs> awful, awful. Um, as opposed to like a nice firm one, not where you get your hands squished. Um, but, you know, a really good deep pressure massage that goes into your muscles and just helps you feel great. So, Pretty much across the board, kids do better with deep pressure uh, touch. So when you're shampooing a child's hair, you want to use that deeper pressure, not super light pressure. It helps to, to, for the child to know where they are. Like, this is what's happening on my head. It's really calming. It's reassuring. Um, that's helpful. Often what kids are objecting to with the rinsing part is not even so much water on their face, although a quick fix for that is just to have the child hold a washcloth over their eyes and even their face while you rinse their hair. Um, but it's more about tilting the head. So you, you think about rinsing, your child has to close her eyes and either put her head down or back. Both of them um, can elicit some, some really strong reactions because you change the, you get into the vestibular system, I'm getting technical here. I love but it. You change the head position so the child has a vestibular experience. And the vestibular sense, it's one that we often don't think about, but it's, a, it's our sense of movement and head position relative to gravity. So a lot of times a parent will tell you, a child, teach a child, I'm gonna rinse your hair now, you're gonna close your eyes tight and put your head backward. And if you try it right now, it feels kind of weird. Now it's a little bit hard to breathe and swallow at the same time. So in general, you wanna have your child co cover her face with a washcloth, if that helps. Um, try it. You know, a lot of this stuff is trial and error and put have her put her tilt her head forward for rinsing. Another idea is kids, you know, kids love to control stuff. Oh, yeah. And they're trying to control us and they do a really good job mm -hmm. all the time. Um, <laughs> they train us really well. It might help your child to do the rinsing herself. 
So install one of those hand showers and you can go to Bed Bath & Beyond or look online and get one of those uh, shower heads that has a, an optional hand shower. And so you have your child sitting in the tub and have her rinse her own hair, right? Your mm-hmm. bathroom may get really wet and that's okay, <laughs> right? That's right. all right. That can help a lot. So try those things. Also think about, does the child like the shampoo? Is that a good smell for your child? Is that part of it? Is the water too hot or too cold? Are they actually anxious not about the actual hair washing, but about getting up and being towel dry? Yes, that's a real towel. Like you might want to try a rougher towel. Interesting. Yeah, that was she would get very upset about us not wrapping her up tightly and carrying her to her room. Okay. And then I didn't. That was like talk about your deep pressure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she, that's, that's what, she, what, that's what that is. Back. And now I'm feeling guilty, Lindsay, because it's like this is, you know, now she's five and some of this she's outgrown. But now, you know, at the time I was just like, oh, my God, you're being such a diva. Like, I'm not carrying you to your room. Right. Right. And now I feel bad. <laughs> Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. I mean, these things, it's not our experience. Or sometimes the parents, I'll talk to parents, they're like, yeah, I do the same thing. So I don't see why it's a problem. (laughs) But most of the time, that's not the case. And we're like, what's up with this child? She's being a princess. Mm -hmm. Or boy, is he being just being difficult. Um, And even if you're not kind of using those negative words or thoughts, it's like, I don't get it. Um, You need to buck up, kiddo, and deal with this. This is the real world and you need to get used to it. And Here's something that I really want parents to always keep in mind. And I'm I'm going to give you um, a little story. You're going to a picnic with a paper plate in your hand. And you go and you get a hot dog and you put that on your paper plate. And then you get some potato chips and put that on your paper plate. Then you get a little potato salad and that's on your paper plate. And then you go for a little coleslaw and your whole plate falls apart. Your kid's nervous system, their emotional system is kind of like a paper plate. You've got to figure out how much you can put on it. And, you know, so how much is the right amount of of demand before her plate falls apart, right? Our job as therapists, as teachers, as parents is to figure that out. How much can this child handle and how much do we need to support them? You know, how much do we need to protect them? And so parents need to figure out how much can go on that plate. And as a therapist, I work with a child to strengthen that paper plate because we need both. It's this ongoing dance that you do with your child of, you know, how much do I push them forward and how much do I protect them? And if you make a mistake, it's understandable. There is no cookbook recipe for this and every child is different. So never blame yourself. Don't blame yourself. What I find especially encouraging about this book, besides the millions of tips and moms out there, I mean, everyone needs this book. I mean, it's... (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously, you. like all of these mom hacks are so amazing because like one you didn't mention about the bath was how you talk about how putting you like put you can put a poster like above the bath so they have something to look up at kind of like and I was thinking like, oh, that's what my dentist does. <laughs> oh, okay. um, and that was such a good one. I mean, you have tips for picky eaters, you know, when you can tell if there's a real issue there and like how you can expand food choices. It's like a parenting encyclopedia of tips that I wish I had had from day one. Can we talk a little bit about a sensory diet? You know, absolutely. especially because I'm using this as my private consult right now. Like <laughs> if you have a child that really loves the rough and tumble, what can I do? Like, should I be doing more play dates or not? Like, do I send her to the park more or do I slow it down? Just as your child needs food throughout the course of the day, the need for sensory input also needs to be met. So people who are not familiar with the term sensory diet, just to explain what that is, it's a like a really carefully designed personalized activity plan that would provide your child with the, the sensory input that he or she needs to stay organized throughout the day. So a play date really could be helpful for a sensory diet, but you know there are a lot of different aspects with that. Does your child become overstimulated at a play date? You don't want your child to have meltdowns with friends. So you, when you're thinking about sensory diet, it's different. It's separate mm. stuff. Um, if your child needs a lot of input, you want to give it to them. So riding a bicycle, riding a scooter, going to the playground every day, rain or shine. My co-author, I suggested that she and her husband get her son to the playground every day before school. And they did it, um, even if it was snowing or sleeting out, he didn't care. And that really helped him to get on an evil, even keel uh, for the day. You go before school, you weren't concerned about him being too tired then during the day? No. I mean, okay. for him, he had a, it is, as I mentioned, very personalized. Right. So you do have to customize it. If you find, gee, she's really too tired at school, then you're not going to do it, right? You know, it, it all depends on the child and how their system is working. So you might instead take a couple, if you live in an apartment building, take a couple of uh, flights down before you get on the school bus or walk to school. Just sort of build it into the morning if you can. A little mini trampoline with a safety bar for a child to hold on to while they're talking to you and you're getting ready, that could really help them in the morning. At school, some kids need frequent movement breaks and you can work with the school to make those socially acceptable. Like. Maybe your child can be the helper who um, runs a note to the office every morning or every afternoon. Even God, if I love that, you got to work it out like an empty envelope. Okay, it gives the child a break <laughs> and move and get that movement that his or her body needs. That's brilliant. Oh, I love to hear that. Thank you. It is. Um, but you know, this is the kind of thing that takes creativity. And um, working, especially for young children, schools are very understanding about this thing because most teachers have studied development and they know kids need to move more than they do. Um, 
And then after school, definitely get to the playground after school. Engage the child in physical activities that they love, right? Even if it's, you know, doing a yoga DVD. I'm sort of old fashioned. I guess DVDs aren't that big anymore. But like going on to um, gonoodle.com. That's a good one. So it's G-O-N-O-O-D-L-E.com. There are a lot of different movement activities that you and your child can do together. And that's a range of ages from like active movement to like a mindfulness meditation. So you can use a site like that. Kids love technology. So you can use a site like that to help your child go from that high arousal state to a more self-regulated state. You want to take your child where they're at and help them from there. And and these tips are helping change what you guys write, a person's neurological wiring, which is really incredible that it's to remember that it's it's this isn't an always and forever thing, that there are these little ways that we can change, we can make these choices that can change our children's lives. Like I, that's so, it's such an empowering book. You know, in closing, some of the listeners, I'm sure are wondering if they should get their child evaluated. So what are the early signs of sensory processing differences and, and when would you want to get your child evaluated? What often happens is parents will be concerned and ask their pediatrician what they think. And often, unless it's something really obvious, like the child is, you know, it's many way past time to speak or fine motor or gross motor skills are way, way delayed. They'll usually say, oh, you're just being anxious and don't worry. And um, everything's fine. Just calm down. And meanwhile, you know, in your gut, something's going on. When it becomes a problem. When your child is not meeting developmental milestones, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about missing them by a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, but like the milestones aren't happening. The child is really acting up or tuning out. Um, you want to start thinking about about an evaluation when your child is avoiding a lot of situations that other child children seem to enjoy. Your child doesn't want to go to the playground. She's overstimulated. She's covering her ears. She's crying. She's having excessive tantrums. You're, you, you feel like you're a short order cook because there are only like one or two things that your child will eat. These kinds of things. You can also go to, um, in my book, I have a checklist that you can look at. You can also go to my website, which is sensorysmarts.com, S-E-N-S-O-R-Y-S-M. A-R-T-S. And there's a sensory checklist there that you can go through and just kind of, you know, it's an easy to follow questionnaire. Um, and that will give you a sense as well, like, oh, yeah, something's going on and I need a little bit of help. The good news is you get the evaluation, you get some help. And more often than not, kids get better 
sometimes very rapidly. The key is finding out what's going on, and then then you have then you can have a roadmap for where to go from there. Great, Lindsay, have you ever had a parent <laughs> uh, say like, "Holy cow, maybe I'm the one with a sensory processing issue"? <laughs> like yeah. these birthday parties are a little intense for me. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well. You know, the apple doesn't always fall far from the tree, you know, um, as they say. I get carried to my bedroom from the bathtub, too. I'm kidding. Uh, Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Often parents do have similar issues, and that's okay, because Mm -hmm. that makes you the perfect person to speak with your child about this. Like, I know, I feel the same way. So I really do understand what you're talking about, and I'm going to help you. We're going to figure this out together. Well, okay, everybody. The latest edition of this book is out this week. It is the winner of the Napa Gold Award and iParenting Media Award. The book, again, is Raising a Sensory Smart Child, the definitive handbook for helping your child with sensory processing issues. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show, Lindsay Beal. We super appreciate it. And for our listeners, I want to send you off with this amazing hashtag mom hack that is shared in this book because it's going to change my life when I go to the airport next month. It is. You can place a sticky note over those stupid automatic flushing toilets. My kid would never want to go to the bathroom because the flushing to the automatic flushing toilet is so like freaky. 